Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. After Songs in the Attic, I wanted to write, I guess, a real sonic um, masterpiece. Uh, the Nylon Curtain took a long, long time to record. Uh, Rather than starting with just a basic song and adding to it, we kind of started with the songs from the outside and worked our way in. We didn't really know what we had until we were getting close to the final mix. There was so much recorded, um, different instruments, sound effects, orchestral things, percussion instruments, vocals, synthesizers. There's so much going on in this record. It's very, very rich. Almost like I was trying to go for a Sgt. Pepper kind of thing, where I was experimenting playing the studio as an instrument. And um, it, was a, it was a labor. It was a labor of love, but it was exhausting. I think by the end of making this album, I, I felt like I had almost died. It was, it was just a great, great deal of work. And I, I consider this maybe my best recorded effort. The Nylon Curtain wasn't nearly as popular as Billy Joel's albums just before and after this release, but it still spawned a handful of hits, classics, and perennial fan favorites and concert staples. And today, it's regarded by fans and critics as Billy's most accomplished artistic statement. Released in 1982, The Nylon Curtain came just after the string of smash hit albums from The Stranger in 1977, through Glass Houses in 1980, and the live songs in the attic that rewrote his early work. And it was released less than a year before An Innocent Man would race up the charts and capture a new generation of fans. In contrast to the harder-edged rock of Glass Houses and the bouncy fun of An Innocent Man, The Nylon Curtain is a thoughtful, occasionally dark, and sonically adventurous affair. It's often lauded as his most Beatlesque album, and it's certainly one of Billy's most thoughtful releases as he tackles war, aging, and social dilemmas throughout its nine songs. Join us as we take a long look behind the nylon curtain. It was committed discreetly It was handled so neatly And it shouldn't surprise you at all You know Of all the album retrospective episodes, I think this was one that I was looking forward to the most. Something about this record grabbed me at an early age, and it's kind of surprising because... <laughs> In retrospect, it uh, it definitely was over my head. We're talking about the Nylon Curtain, which came out 40 years ago this month. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. I don't know if th same things drew us in, but I think it was the production on this one, even without knowing what that meant necessarily. Even though we had no idea what they were talking about, it was just the sonics of the record was was really interesting. I always remember the the thin yet beefy sound of Allentown it was like immediately drawing me in when I was a kid. And that sort of pulled me through the whole album, you know, having no idea 
what let's say Laura was about to say nothing of most of the second half, <laughs> or at least a certain two songs toward the end there. You know, it's a very unique album all the way around between subject matter, production, the amount of time it took. There, there are so many things that are unique to this album. And that's another reason I'm looking forward to diving into it and the timeline surrounding it, because I think this is one of the biggest outliers of the Billy catalog in a good way. For as diverse as all his albums are, this one makes the least amount of sense in its diversity. We saw him go from just straight singer-songwriter in Cold Spring Harbor, to West Coast singer-songwriter with Piano Man and Street Life, and then arguably the next three albums that you know rounded out the 70s for him were in his own idiom. All three turnstiles, Stranger and 52nd Street, just kept building on the previous one. Right. And then after that, everything, each one was different, but they all made sense. They were all sort of of their era in some way, even as retro as An Innocent Man was. The fact that it was a retro album gave it a theme and gave it an appropriate theme at a time when there was some retro to the 50s going on, when the Stray Cats were coming up and things like that. This one, you know, who the hell in the early 80s was like, yeah, let's make a Beatles album. Let's make a late era Beatles album. Let's make another magical mystery tour, but written from a guy yeah. in Long Island. Not not someone that spent months in India with the Maharishi. Billy's Beatle influence is so well documented over the years, and we've talked about it quite a bit. But to have an album like this, so John Lennon-y and so Beatlesque all the way around, so much so that Julian Lennon heard it and loved the sound so much that he tapped Phil Ramone to do his next record. Really? I didn't know that. And this was Julian's first album. Came out in 1984. Mm -hmm. In typical Phil Ramone fashion, there was a couple people from the Billy camp on the record as well. Who from Billy's camp? Most notably, Dave LeBolt was one of the keyboard players. And we have Ralph McDonald on percussion, Toots Thielmans on harmonica, Eric Troyer oh. backing vocals, Rory Dodd. You know, all these guys worked on the Innocent Man record just the year before. Brad Shali, uh, engineer and mixing on the record as well. I'm super excited to jump into the songs here. So let's get through some of the background on this record so we can hit the grooves, so to speak. I also want to give a quick shout out to our buddy Jeff Fisher, who has been an immense resource these past many months. Uh, anytime we reach out to him, be like, hey, we're working on an episode about the nylon curtain. We're working on 1978. We're working on this. Do you have anything? And he will just send us an incredible detailed chronological list of the happenings around that topic. The information he has at his fingertips is is just astounding. Between stats and just what was going on, where he was, it's so much more than than we could than we really have the time to to research ourselves. So with that said, we'll jump into some background on the album. So as far as release, it was actually released September twenty third, nineteen eighty two, uh, which was the day before my third birthday. But for this beginning here, we're going to go all the way back to the fall of 1981, where everything began. The album was recorded at Media Sound Studios in New York. So by this point in 81, Phil had largely moved out of A&R Recording, which is crazy because he was a partner. But him and his partner, I believe, had a falling out. There were some things going on. So after Glass Houses, Phil started moving production elsewhere more frequently. Now, this Media Sound Studios is actually a really interesting place. It was an old Baptist church um, located on 57th Street. It's actually at 311 West 57th Street, 311. Um, I think it's currently like a small event space, uh, last I checked. But at the time, it was a converted church that was converted into a recording studio. And Phil wasn't the only one 
who did records there. Uh, I looked at a brief list of some albums that were actually done at the studio. You had Color in Your Life by Missing Persons, more songs about buildings and food, Talking Head, uh, self-titled album by Scandal, T-Rex's Electric Warrior, Steve Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble's Texas Flood. You had Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, Rocket to Russia, The Ramones, Inner Vision, Stevie Wonder, Rebel Yell, Billy Idol. So a lot of big records were done here. Can we, can we just pause yep. to note the diversity of records to go from Inner Visions to Rebel Yell? I know. You'll, you'll find that at the big studios that were, you know, that had a good vibe and had a good sound. You know, it seemed like a handful of studios would get a lot of big records through the door. So in Liberty's book, he speaks a bit about recording at Media Sound, which they actually said was a bit difficult because they were used to A&R and they could see Phil while they were recording. And if he was bouncing to the groove, it was good. If he stood up he was and, and really got into it, they knew it was great, but they couldn't see him. And that, that became a problem. And then they said every time the door opened, the band was distracted by the bright light that came from the hallway. So Phil got pissed off and told his assistant, you got to do something. Get me a buzzer. Get me something, anything. He says, get me a statue of the bandana that lights up to tell people we are working. So they ended up with a giant statue of the Virgin Mary that was wired up. And if the statue was lit up, they were doing a take. If not, they weren't. <laughs> Funny when you hear about how like Phil would like kind of bark stuff that that's what they, 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 they took him at his word, I think is pretty funny. The crew, you know, between band and Phil's crew's sense of humor and Phil's sense of humor. I think they knew what he would get a kick out of with anyone else. It could have pissed them off, um, but I'm sure Phil got a kick out of what they ultimately came up with. You know, I mentioned that the studio was an old Baptist church. Now, the album began in late 1981, and that was around the time where Billy and the band were a guest on Saturday Night Live. And a couple episodes ago, Jack and I were pontificating on the circumstances around the band being in the recording studio. And the more we are digging around, sure enough, they were in the studio working on the Nylon Curtain. And that studio that they're in that you see on Saturday Night Live is Media Sound Studios. I think there's some stained glass in there or something like that. That's the old church. So that is the studio that we're referring to if you look at the old Saturday Night Live. So let's get into the personnel on the record. Richie Cannata left the band in 1981 after Songs in the Attic. And if you notice on the SNL performance of Miami 2017, he's already gone. So this was the first album in quite a while that did not feature a saxophone prominently. So with that said, here's who played on the record. The core band was Billy Joel, vocals, acoustic and electric pianos, synthesizers, Hammond organ, melodica, Sinclair, and various other synthesizers. We had David Brown, lead guitar, Russell Javers, rhythm guitar, Doug Stegmeyer, bass guitar, Liberty DeVito, drums and percussion. And then we also had additional musicians, Bill Zampino, who played the field snare on Goodnight Saigon, Rob Mounsey, who played synthesizer on Scandinavian Skies, Dominic Cortese, who played accordion on Where's the Orchestra? And also on Where's the Orchestra, you had Eddie Daniels playing saxophone, Charles McCracken on cello, and the string arrangements were done by Dave Grusin. David Nadian was the concertmaster on Allentown, tracks three through seven, which is Pressure, Goodnight Saigon, He's Right on Time, Room of Our Own, Surprises, and Where's the Orchestra? Basically everything where there's uh, strings. And you had String Fever, which was a uh, well-known string group who played on a lot of records. They played strings on Laura and Scandinavian Skies. On the production side, we had Phil Ramone, producer, Laura Longto, assistant producer, 
Jim Boyer, engineer and remix, Bradshaw Lee, associate engineer, Michael Christopher, assistant engineer, Larry Frank, Andy Hoffman were both assistant engineers. Ted Jensen mastered the album at Sterling Sound in New York. Kenneth Topolsky was the production manager. Paula Schur did artwork. John Berg, Innersleeve Design. Chris Ostopchuk and Chris, forgive me if I'm butchering your name, but Chris designed the front cover and Benno Friedman did the back cover photo. There was a lot going on 81 into 82 and some of it directly was responsible for how this album came together and everything like that. Early 81, the band's in the studio working on the next record, like we said, and uh, they're still putting out singles from Songs in the Attic, so that kind of bought them some time, which was good because April 15th and 82, while they're in the midst of doing the record, Billy had the infamous motorcycle accident where he badly damaged his hands. And once that happened, you got a flurry of press coverage shortly after You know, your People magazines, New York Times, Boston Globe, Philadelphia Daily News, a lot of local media outlets were picking it up pretty quickly. And it was big coverage at the time, uh, you know, with Billy Joel so badly injured. This was an album where, as Billy says, he used the studio as an instrument. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Nylon Curtain, and we'll go into it when we go track by track, but Liberty's like, yeah, you know, I overdubbed this snare drum part three times. And we applied this and we added these shakers and we added all of this and there's keyboard layer over keyboard layer and there's so much texture and layers going on. In stark contrast, Glass Houses was the five of them in the studio cutting most of the basic tracks live, even a lot of the vocals with minimal overdubs. So it was a very, very different process. And with a September of 82 release, when you figure they were working on it up until July, at most, there was two months from the point where it was done to the point where it hit the shelves, where the the traditional marketing cycle was at least three months, if I'm correct, where they would the record would be in hand three months prior to the release yeah. date so everybody could line up the interviews and the and the radio spots and covers of what magazines are you going to be on? And you know you would make sure that the reviews were filed well ahead of time so they came out the same month. And what's wild too about it is, you know, with the accident, you know, Billy only took like five, six weeks off. Um, and considering, you know, if you remember the live from Long Island at the end of 82, that concert, you see him, you know, hands still bandaged a couple spots and he's shaking his wrists out every now and again. So at the end of the year, it's still clearly bothering him. Pretty amazing. The fact that he went back to work a relatively short time later, considering how badly his hands were, were hurt. I mean, on one hand, you wonder how much of the piano stuff was done. On the other hand, <laughs> Ah, the hands. I got you. I got you. (laughs) Looking at it one way, (laughs) you know, maybe a lot of the piano work was done. Looking at the other, we know he also liked to track vocals live while playing piano. Yeah. So I wonder if that changed on this record or if he still pushed through it. That's a fair point. And it's also worth noting that this album, while there is piano certainly on it, Allentown, Where's the Orchestra?, Laura, you know, there's certainly songs. There is a lot of keyboards and keyboards aren't necessarily as hard on the hands because you don't have the the tougher action of a grand piano. So it's possible that he was working more in keyboard land and the overdubs and vocals while he was recuperating just to kind of allow him to ease back into it. You know, it gets overlooked in the midst of everything that happened this year. And it's interesting for this to occur on his mature album, which we'll get into in a moment. This is the year, nay, the summer, that Billy and Elizabeth get divorced. 
Yes. Now, at least officially, I guess the date we got from Jeff is July 20th. I guess I don't know if that's when they filed or when it was finalized, but yeah, you know, it's still got to have an impact. I mean, clearly that's got to be hanging over the production. Even if it was amicable and you both knew and all of this, I mean, in the best of circumstances, it's a it's a hard thing to go through. As Liberty says, and you know, this is well known, but he puts it pretty succinctly, the theme of the album is the positive and negative experiences of our generation. The quote over 30s, which we had just turned at the time of the recording. So as, as much as it is made to sound like John Lennon and George Harrison in their 20s, sonically, lyrically, it's the sound of people that are over the hill, so to speak, as at least right. in the rock and roll world. And that's where we jump in to the album. We've got nine songs on this album, and it was one of Billy's longer albums to date, closing in on almost 45 minutes, I want to say. 42. He wasn't thinking about singles or performing live or anything with these songs. You had some of his longer songs on this album. And that really shows in, in, in the lyrics, in the, in the production choices in a lot of things, really, that this was not him trying to be anything he had been up to that point, which is notable because his last studio album, he was very much trying to be a punk, very much trying to be new wave, or at least not a singer songwriter. The album opens with Allentown and the classic steam whistle that we've come to know and love. out that this is the third album in a row and at least the second studio album that opens with a sound yes that's correct glass houses songs in the attic technically has the moog trying to be like an emergency siren i think in a couple places that i'll get to this album has some of his best use of sound effects i could really take or leave the sound effects on glass houses they're kind of cool but they don't explain anything more they're more of a cherry on top yeah in at least one or two places here they become integral to the song to help you understand what's going yeah, on. Yeah, agreed. I, I think anywhere they exist, and we'll get to them as we go through the songs, they really become a part of the story of the song, and they're just not just something tacked onto it. It really weaves into the texture of the recording as well. And the, I remember the one thing, listening back to this, I did it a couple ways. I listened to it in the car a few times, like probably a lot, of, you know, once I started driving. Years ago, I listened to it um, at my desk in headphones. And then I also listened to it uh, on the turntable. Now, I wanted to get a lot of different vibes by having different settings, and it was great every way. But I tell you, listening to it closely with a good pair of headphones, a lot really comes out and comes alive. That is so subtle when you're listening through speakers. Uh, that really popped out to me more and more. I did iPod or iPhone through the car. I think I did vinyl through speakers and might have been, yeah, might have been CD through headphones. And I've got my uh, show and tell table here with me as well. All right. All right. Rub it in, Mike. What do you got? So I like whenever we do these album episodes, I know, Jack, you're thumbing through a copy of it as well. But I always like to have mm -hmm. visual aids, even though nobody can see what I'm doing except for Jack. <laughs> and that's probably, you know, 
good. It inspires me, so I like to have it all on hand. Um, what I have with me is an original U.S. vinyl pressing. Still in the shrink wrap with the hype sticker. There's nine new songs featuring Pressure, Allentown, A Room of Our Own, and She's Right on Time. And then below it, it says also on cassette. I have a bunch of records here, but I actually uh, just have my one copy of Nylon Curtain. I actually pulled An Innocent Man, 52nd Street, and Glass Houses. And the reason was, as I was giving it my listen today, it occurred to me how different the lyrics are, not just in theme, but in construction. I've spoken before a lot about how Billy had developed to use, as, as a good writer would, to really use phonetics. Just pleasing sounds, the uh, lyrical flights of fancy, things like that, that always made sense, but also were just pleasing from a sort of literary standpoint or even just a sonic standpoint. Sure. And in a funny way, it's not present here. There's a lot of brute force A-A-B-B rhyme schemes here. A lot of this rhyme, this line rhymes with the next one. New rhyme scheme for the next two lines. I'm going I'm to talk out my ass here, but there's not a lot of that sort of Anglican lilt in, in the Anglican words. I'm going to go say that a lot of these are perhaps Germanic, a lot of, you know, yeah. very brute force kind of uh, language. So, you know, looking back to, let's say, Glass Houses and even 52nd Street, he, he works a lot in threes. You know, Friday night I crashed your party, Saturday I said I'm sorry, Sunday came and trashed me out again, right. A-A-B, yep. and then C-C-D. Only having fun was hurting anyone. Even on um, 52nd Street, Big Shot, all impressed with the Halston dress and the people that you knew at Elaine's. Um, even though you could call that an interior, but it's still an AAB. You know, Rosalinda's eyes, just going for the first ones here. When she smiles, she gives everything to me. When she's all alone, she cries. I do anything to take away your tears because they're Rosalinda's eyes. ABCB. All through the nylon curtain, it is brute force AABB. But I think what he's doing here a lot more is he's cramming a lot of insight and a lot of meaning into these lines. Not that he didn't before necessarily, but he seemed to more let an idea blossom out throughout a whole song. While this happens here as well, these lines are really packed with, I think, what he's thinking, with his, we'll say, the wisdom of this album. You can, you can pull them out in pull quotes more than you could on some other albums where you would have to let a whole verse or perhaps a whole song germinate to get that whole feel. You could pull couplets out of here anywhere and you can get a lot out of it. They carry more weight, certainly. Starts right in Allentown. I never realized it until I really sat down today. The rhythm of the words, of the syllables, of the accents mimics the machinery. That didn't happen in other places. Right. I play nights in the Spanish part of town. Nice little da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, even Big Shot. Ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-da-da-da-ba. You know, it's got it's got some variety in it, even as 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 clunking as that is on purpose. Yeah. And we see so we see this going on right away in Allentown, how he's using these lyrics uh differently than he has on other albums. Yeah, and coupled with on Allentown, especially coupled with the slapback reverb on his vocal, gives it like it really complements the whole pile driver you know, force yeah. and strength of the lyric and of the sound effects and it's all works in concert together. And when you, when you say, uh, you know, using the studio as an instrument, I think this is part of it where everything ties together into the sonic tapestry here. Um, you know, from the sound effects to the slapback echo to the actual lyrics. Mm -hmm. Allentown has some of my favorite melodic flights here. The, uh, the, the vocal on, on away, you know, how that plays out. The bridge here is one of my favorites, just the way it, it, it punches up. And then the reprise of it with David Brown's guitar is just spot on the frustration. Just, just. 
you know, reaches a fever point, it sounds so like empowering. It's not. It's frustration. It's a protagonist getting that mad because then he doesn't get up the next day. He's like, I'm not even getting out of bed. That's how pissed off. Right. I'm not even pissed off. He's beyond pissed off now. He was pissed off last night. Probably had a little bender. And uh, the next day he's like, I ain't even getting out of bed. Well, look, the song ends the way it begins. And we're living here in Allentown. Yeah. It almost becomes like, uh, yeah, and we're living here in Allentown. Uh, And here we are. (laughs) Yeah. And one thing too, production wise, I noticed right out of the gate was the big drums holy moly the eq and reverb choices all look all look around the board but i noticed that most on billy's vocal and liberty's drums they just have this attack and the reverb it's just like a snap like that it just like it comes right back at you real quick but you feel like a jolt um just very powerful in the mix and i you know i like the way that contrasts against the acoustic guitars and billy's piano yeah, it's again that thin but meaty sound that really worked well. And uh, we've, I mean, we've talked about the pile driver sound before, but that was, uh, I don't know if you all read Liberty's book and we're, you know, we're doing some paraphrasing and quoting a bit from the book, but classic story of they were trying to get something to go with that sound to really have that sound of the industrial machinery. Couldn't find anything that seemed to work. You know, that's part of the fun of making a record too. It's like trying to find a sound, trying to like get creative and like, you know, what can we find and what can we come up with to sound cool? Liberty had mentioned that there were these two big hard shell percussion cases from the um, company where they rented the gear from. And they were filled with shakers, maracas, tambourines, and the like. They came up with the idea of Liberty jumping up and down on them to give it that big slamming attack to go with that section. You know, the tricky thing is, too, it's like this is no Pro Tools so this isn't just, hey, go in the live room, jump up a couple of times and we'll move it into place. He had to sit there, listen to the track, figure out the timing of exactly when to jump and come down and land with the beat. And so they were finally done uh, with it and they go to open the cases. According to Liberty, all the gear inside was just smashed to pieces. So uh, <laughs> SIR, which is Studio Instrument Rentals, they sent Billy a nice bill <laughs> for that one. <laughs> the Japanese pressing of the vinyl Billy does a little write-up on most of the songs from the album, Allentown Through Surprises. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to get Billy's thoughts in 1982 about each of these songs. So in 82, Billy says about Allentown, I started writing the melody with that title back in 71 or 72. On one of the first tours we did, we played Allentown and the whole Lehigh Valley area. God knows how many times it struck me that this typified industrial America, the blue collar one industry town, everyone seemed to have some kind of connection to with U S steel. The economy of the entire town revolved around that plant over the years as the auto industry went. So did cities like that. It must've been a boom town after the war. And now it's not. I know people who moved to places like this, to these boom towns, they were promised a job and it didn't work out. The whole romanticism of unions and factories had gone right down the toilet, but it's still a hopeful song. What I'm saying is it's getting hard to stay here, but we're American and we're going to stick it out. We have hope. We don't have that limitless, boundless future outlook that our parents had after the war. There's been a monkey wrench thrown in the works. All of a sudden, we're running out of natural resources. We're running out of energy sources. There's no grand, big, fat, bountiful America after all. I mean, we lost a war. I don't think that there's been an American generation 
since the generation that grew up in the South after the Civil War that had to deal with anything like that. 40 years ago, people. 40 years ago. Goes back to, it's interesting, you know, Billy will have a germ of an idea or a melody in his head and it may stick around for a while. I mean, he started coming up with the idea, you know, before Piano Man album, kind of popping around in his head. And there's even a great audio clip, and I think we'll play a little bit of it here, where Larry Frank, who was one of the engineers on the Nylon Curtain, he posted on the Retold Facebook group some really interesting clips in the studio on this record where they were working through some songs. You have Billy and Liberty and I think Doug, I think it's mostly the three of them in the the studio and Billy is showing them his Allentown idea. Lyrics aren't fully there and he's still kind of working through it. I mean, like, this is kind of what I'm thinking. And even as they're in the studio, he's still working it out. So this is a song that took a decade Mm -hmm. to come together. Right. Next is Laura. but I would say this is the first Billy Joel song I remember hearing that I had no clue what was going yes. on. Granted, I was five, but still, there was just like no, you couldn't, you know, as a kid, you, you just, you had nothing to work with nope. here. But the, the idea of, of the fingers bleeding on the coffee table was so vivid to me at the time. And I just imagined a, a woman with long nails and that, that's all I could figure out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, such a shift from Allentown. Going into this, Allentown is uh, certainly journalistic Billy, and now we're, we're getting our first glimpse of abstract Billy. You know, I mean, obviously it's it's still rooted in reality here. A little bit of that same lyrical accent, Laura calls me, but what keeps happening here is it, it sort of drifts in the middle of the night, you know, yep. that kind of thing. And then, of course, you got that big four against three triplet, uh, living that bum, 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 against the uh, 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 here's a, here's an obscure Beatles, uh, illusion. What's it called? We can work it out. Life is very short. Uh, 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 uh. you know, not, not quite, but it's got that fussing and fighting my friend, but it's got that sort of fighting against the yes. melody. You know, it's not, yeah, not quite, but it, that's what I kind of took off this. 
You know, there's a lot to say about the, the music here because it's certainly very different from other things they had done. The arrangement here is maybe one of the first times where they really arranged it with uh, instruments coming in and out way, way, way long ago when we were talking about covers yeah. and we were talking about how Phil Ramone used a lot of dynamics. The band themselves would sort of rise and fall a lot of times. Sure, the saxophone jumped in and jumped out, but for the most part, people were playing all the way through. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, it's a lot more of elements coming in and out with a very static volume to the track. This is a, one of the first ones, I think, for Billy, where they get the arrangement from different instruments coming in and out. So like early in the song, there's some little hi-hat flourishes after some lines, mm -hmm. finish up a stanza, and then Libya takata, you know, something like that. And then later on, it's guitar or it's or backing vocals are doing that instead. Yeah. You know, the overall volume of the track is about the same. You don't feel like a rise and fall in there. You know, another thing I love too on this song is the sweeping, very dark strings through the like, I fight her walls while she slammed that those sections. If you just listen mm -hmm. in the back, there's these crazy string parts going on that are just a lot of movement, but it it's very dark to me. Yeah. Um looking over you know, I wrote something and I was <laughs> I mean not not necessarily wrong, but uh, there's, I like in this one, there there are some very subtle clues as to what's exactly happening. You won't necessarily think it's his mom, but it's just that one line, how can she hold an umbilical cord for so long? That's like the linchpin, really, to the song that tells you who he's talking about. It's very subtly a scene. You don't realize it's a first. So like, you know, Allentown, is, is, it, there's scene to it, but it's really summary. You know, he's not anywhere in particular until the end where you just know he's in his house. Right. right. But this is a phone call. Laura calls me in the middle of the night is how it starts. And then the last line is, how can you, how do you hang up on someone who needs you that bad? Yeah. So it's actually the interior monologue mostly of what's going on during a specific phone call. This isn't like the track of their relationship. It's what's happening right here. Right. Somebody that saw that in the movie theater a whole bunch of times when it came out comes up with something like that. And it's such a great line. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because a lot of it's, like you said, it's an inner monologue, but it's talking about his frustration and the strained relationship. But then there's also the lines of Laura loves me, even if I don't care. Like I, she pisses me off. I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated, but I know she loves me and she would do anything for me. If right. she had to, she would put, her, put herself in my chair, you know, things like that. Questions will get sympathetic answers. It's another nod at the exterior. Like he's just sort of, yeah, no, I know my, no, that's horrible. And inside he's, he's not, he's, he's biting his Yeah, muscle. he's kind like of stewing. can't see it, but he's like, yeah, ah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is great aggravated Billy, you know, sound like he's arguing with his credit card company <laughs> sort of voice. Yeah. There. And, you know, you mentioning the whole umbilical cord line and even the way he sings it almost, I wonder if it's intentional to where it's easy to gloss over because it's not. I remember when I was young, I wasn't even super clear that he was saying the word umbilical right. without looking at the words. That's like in Allentown. You know, how long till I knew he was saying threw an American flag on our face? I had no clue what that yeah. was. Take a second and talk about David Brown's guitar solo here. One of my favorite David Brown moments on a record. He made Jeff Lynne hold his beer while he did it. <laughs> Liberty says that during the song, Liberty, for some odd reason, had a hard time finding the one. So Billy always had to cue him every time they would run through it. You know, the line, here I am feeling like a fucking fool. 
He said they did try different words there, but none of them had the right bite that it needed. Yeah. And so it stayed. I know we've talked about this before, maybe in our first episode, but that was the song that got me detention. I remember this story. This is a fantastic. You should tell it for the people that haven't gone all the way back. Yes. Yet. If you guys haven't heard this story yet, surprise, surprise. I had a habit in school of when we would do show and tell, because back in the day, back in the eighties, every classroom had a record player. So anytime show and tell would come around, I would always bring in a record and my teachers would humor me and let me play a song. And on this occasion in the mid eighties, I brought in the 45 of pressure and Laura was the B side having no clue what it meant. And clearly not what all the words meant. Uh, I loved Laura and wanted, decided to play that song. And you know, my teacher was none the wiser and she's like, yeah, you know, Oh great. Billy Joel song. You know, that's pretty friendly for the kids and for everybody. So she let me put on Laura and it went, Absolutely fine. Everything went great until it gets to that line. Here I am feeling like a fucking fool. And needless to say, the song ended prematurely that day. <laughs> I think that was really how I learned what curse words were. I didn't know. This must speak to how differently we grew Seriously. up. Because not only did I know it, but I, I think my cousin and I both looked over our shoulder like, uh-oh. Like we're getting yelled at. <laughs> like we know that tone. Yeah. We know that tone. We know that cadence. We know that that timbre of voice. Yeah. We are fricked. That's hilarious. <laughs> it was definitely not a word I ever heard in my house. So I was not. Yeah. I was. <laughs> and, you know, not that we heard it. Yeah, not yeah. that we got cursed at. Which was, I mean, I, no, I do have to make that point. But you like, like you know, I don't know. Man. You we grew up with so it in the neighborhood. You grew up. You heard it in the neighborhood. And like when your dad was pissed, it was like that was that was the sound his voice made. Like that line. I had to go make sure my toys are put away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably the last time I brought in a record for show and tell. <laughs> so in the uh, Japanese edition, Billy writes about Laura. I didn't want to give it a woman's name. It means anyone who knows how to put the screws on you, who you're close to, whether it's your mother, your father, your wife, your husband, a relative, a friend. The intention of the song was to say someone calls you in the middle of the night, but it doesn't sing well with, Someone is crapo, but Laura <laughs> sang good, had an impact. So I don't necessarily mean when I use a sex in a name that it represents a sex. I mean it to represent a certain kind of person. You know, you're not doing yourself any favor saying that. No, no. <laughs> this would be an example people cite about Billy's lyrics being misogynistic if it was not as obscure as it is. Right. You know, I've, I think I've said this before. It's like, I don't think he is, but like, I see it. We dive so far into these lyrics that we we get it, that there there's sometimes shortcomings or they're put in context of these other songs. But like, I see it. I understand. Yeah, you yeah know? I do. I, I can see where people draw that conclusion for sure. But it's funny in that description there, the first thing he calls out his mother. Oh, it could be mother. Wink, wink. Yeah. The father, you know. Pressure. Man, I love this song. 
But for the fact that he keeps saying pressure, <laughs> kind of kills a little for me. I go back and forth on whether or not it's cheesy, and I feel like it's not, but like, eh, you aggregate that with like the, the synth, it's like you get one or the other, man. You can either do the, uh, as Liberty called it, the Russian Cossack dance, yeah. or you can say pressure every three right. seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I do love this song. I think it's fascinatingly well done. I love his turns of phrase. Mm-hmm. The only fault is it does become didactic when you know he's actually speaking about himself, like his own, the pressure he's putting on himself to finish a, a record or finish a song, but it has to be you. You know, he's projecting it outwards. On, on one hand, I don't mind because we certainly have enough I songs out in the world. So it's interesting to say you, but yeah, whatever. So it's interesting that it's the what throughout, it's pressure, and he's describing this pressure. And then the bridges explain why. He all of a sudden has sympathy. You know, it's it's all your life was Channel 13. Like, hey, your fault. Right. But, you know, you, you grew up this way. Uh, you know, all your life is Time Magazine. He goes with two media things. Yeah. Being sheltered. You know, you're watching kids' shows, or you're getting all your news, like, kind of distilled through a, a bi-weekly news magazine, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some sort of filter on your reality there that you're you're constantly looking through and you get the odds of it when, when that's ripped away, I guess, when you have to face it yeah. all. Oh, like Godfather Deal and your Peter Pan advice. Ah, oh, it's so great. I've been waiting years to use that on somebody. Both of those are so good. <laughs> I've said before, you know, Channel 13 is the uh, PBS affiliate in New York. So I Channel 13, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's Sesame Street. That's where we watched yeah, it. Yeah, see, and growing up in Michigan, I didn't... I, didn't never made that connection until I met you. Yeah, I'm good for something. <laughs> what a completely unobvious choice for a single. Yeah. I, I, you know, I guess it stands to reason that Columbia was probably having a difficult time pulling singles out of this record. I can't believe they didn't go with She's Right on Time. You know, they, they shot the video for it, so they were planning for it. I don't know what happened. It's a lost greatest hit. It really yeah. is. This song, just top to bottom, is just a very, it's so bizarre. Like, you know, the, the solo in it. You know, as Liberty says, it's it's supposed to mimic, sound like car horns. The stress of, you know, traffic. <laughs> you know, once you know it, you can't unsee yeah. that. I like how it pulses with the with the guitars and the bass during the, um, you know, the, the intro parts that are sprinkled throughout the, the song. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-
Here's Billy's bit about pressure on the uh, liner notes here. He says, it's something everyone has to face, and how do you deal with it? A lot of people go to psychiatrists. Pressure isn't the point of the song. The point is how you deal with it. A lot of people have these cosmic rationales. You know, I'm doing my mantra. Dealing with pressure is part of growing up. When you grow up, you know how to deal with pressure because you faced it enough times. You have scars on your face from it. You know, he often writes lyrics that, you know, the bridge and tunnel people and the the quote unquote regular people get. This is a situation where he's being very abstract, but also like you'll key into that. Like, you know, Peter Pan advice and stuff like, hey, you know, you don't have to know exactly to the T what he means, but like you have no scars on your face. Like I didn't understand that that's what he meant specifically, but like you knew what it meant. You're young, you're naive, and now you're up to cake. This is an interesting song to go right into Goodnight Saigon. And to me, in sequence, what's interesting on it is there is a sizable gap. You know, you have the final one, two, three, four, pressure, and it just kind of lets hang, slowly fades out there. And Goodnight Saigon starts oh so quietly and takes a while for the volume of the the jungle and the helicopters to come in. And so there's a good chunk right. of time if you're listening to the record where you don't really hear anything. At the end of the song, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I really started thinking about when I was listening to this, for all the songs about Vietnam, how many of these people were actually right. there? Right. Yeah. Makes you wonder. A lot of them yeah. weren't. Country Joe and the Fish. Right. He wasn't there. Right. Jimmy Cliff wrote Vietnam. He wasn't there. Yep. Anything coming out of the Hyde-Ashbury scene. Oh, yeah. They certainly weren't there. Sprinkled throughout rock biographies. You'll hear stories of people that came back and, you know, were visiting with people and this and that. But, you know, this is perhaps the closest because he worked from other people's direct experiences. And it was something that, you know, he resisted at first, too, because he felt like that. You know, I don't know that the other guys who wrote those other songs had this. But Billy was like, you know, I wasn't there. You know, who am I to talk about this? So, you know, it was something that he he didn't want to do, but his friends really you know, urged him, you know, to use his voice to speak for for the forgotten Vietnam vet. There's something to be said without trivializing what the soldiers had to do. There's something to be said for the skill of a songwriter, of a storyteller, because there are some Vietnam vets that wrote books. Fields of Fire was a big one. That's the first one that comes to mind. I'm sure there are others. You know, there are books written about it. Occasionally you need someone to write an unexpected hit song about it, keep you thinking about it. I mean, like, look, back in... 2017, I think, I was trying to help uh, one of my father's friends write a book about Vietnam. And it was just too big of a project for me. And I could, you know, I couldn't really do it. I didn't have the time and the resources. Yeah. But, you know, I was reading through it. That put a different perspective on this song. Just just little things here and there, you know, within it that that are details that I sort of keyed into. This song becomes more impactful when you have even, even just an, an ounce of what went on and, and what people had to, and what those soldiers had to do, especially because a lot of them didn't want to go. This wasn't World War II. Right. I mean, when you read like just internally in the government, the amount of like BS and, and lying that was going on and obf- what's the word, obfuscation, yeah. you know what I'm trying to say there? Around it that, you know, you know, there's something to be said for the place in the world for, so to speak, the place in the world for somebody that knows how to tell a good story for maximum impact. doesn't matter that he wasn't there. He was the one that was able to get this through. Everybody knows this song. Nobody does not know this song. They did a sketch about it, what, 10, 15 years ago on Saturday Night right. Live. Even, you know, they were, you know, poking a little bit of fun, but not really. It only works because everybody knows this mm-hmm. song. And 
gets that new lease on life after 9-11 when he brings out the first responders. Yeah. Billy is one of the few artists who can pull it off because he has such a unique way of writing the human experience and really not trying to necessarily put a spin on it or a stamp on it. It's just trying to be a mirror of saying, you know, these are my friends and this was their experience. Yes, war was the backdrop, but this was their life for these years. And he told it in a way that regardless of what you thought of the war, regardless of what you think of this or whatever, you could relate to and have empathy for it. And it really made it for a universal song. This is where Billy's terminal unhipness comes in handy because you couldn't have David Bowie, David Lee Roth, Jim Morrison. No, well, he was passed by this point. You know, nobody. Billy Idol. I'm just, I'm just thinking of who, you know, none of these guys would seem anywhere near down to earth and approachable enough to pull this off without seeming completely insincere. It took the guy that's been getting railed for being too suburban and too everyman his whole career to sing a song for the everyman and people be like, no, yep, that's right. And you know what, man, the devil's in the details. And I saw a, a, an idiotic review of this song one time. Not idiotic because they didn't like it. You don't have to like it, but man, you better come up with a good reason. Yeah. And one of them was the fact that the narrator complains about not having soft soap. Hey man, I guarantee you somebody said that to him. Like, yeah. And, and you know what that speaks to? Did you ever talk to somebody that was in war? Or did you ever talk to a cop? They don't give it up, man. They do not. And and that line speaks to something that they would say to get past the conversation. What was it like? Hey, man, yeah. What, was it rough? Yeah, man. Well, I'll tell you what, man. We didn't have no soft soap. I'll tell you that. Right. You know, or like, ah, I remember I didn't have soft soap. You know, real quick, because I keep saying it like this. Is soft soap a thing or he's just saying we didn't have soap that was soft? You know, I never looked into it. I assumed it was liquid soap. They didn't have that comfort. And, you know, for all the, the, the things they saw, you know, that's something I feel like one of these guys would just say. Would just be like, eh, you know, we, I tell you what, man, we didn't, we didn't have that nice soap I had at my house, you know, or something like that. Right. Well, and, and, you know, the line too, even like, you know, we passed the hash pipe and played our doors tapes. Like he's setting such a scene that like you can really like, like you said, you better believe that these guys were telling him this. I mean, it's really, yeah. I feel like he's lifting lines and phrases right from them. A lot of this is not in his voice. Right. How about the, the futility, the amazing futility of the end of that last verse? Did you ever really think about this? I didn't really until today again. You know, they heard the hum of our motors. They counted the rotors and waited for us to arrive. Like, why are we even here? Can you imagine just being like, this is such a done deal before it? knowing that the enemy just had you by the balls before they could even see. I know. But then it's that we will all go down together. It never gives you that payoff you think you're going to get because it has this big, again, anthemic chorus, and then it keeps just dropping down. Like It's just like it's what they're telling themselves. Once again, this is where the sound effects are done to astounding effect because you could possibly think that they went in charging all gung-ho, we're all going to go down together, blah, blah, blah. You can think maybe they got out because there's a helicopter coming in, right? Maybe maybe that was backup, right. you know, or that maybe that was aerial support. You know, maybe they got them out of there. No. Why? Because we hear the jungle again for an uncomfortable amount of time. Mm-hmm. That's how you know this guy never got out. Right. Still there. And the sound effect at the beginning um, sets it up in a way that Billy's other sound effects don't. Like the glass breaking... It's cool. Doesn't mean anything. You're still going to get it. The steam whistle at the beginning of Allentown. That's cool. Gives the idea, but he tells you where he is right in the beginning of it. Right. Good night, Saigon. You know, unless you know Paris Island, you ain't going to get that right away. It just, it sets it up. So you know exactly what's going on and you're immersed immediately. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, that's how you know they didn't get yeah. it. Yeah. 
it's it's not really a parallel, but it reminds me of how Metallica set up one because the yeah. song is about this kid who was sent to war and you know you know lost his arms and legs and the whole bit, and so they same kind of thing. They kind of slowly build up this scene, which is the combat scene where it happens, mm-hmm. and then it it kind of draws you into the song. Um, but the way they do it here on Goodnight Saigon, it's just. It's so subtle, and this is another one that is really great on headphones, where you can just hear like yeah. the it's like the wind, it's like wind chimes, and just it's like you can almost hear something like off in the distance, but you're not quite sure what it is, and it it puts you there. The way they top and tail it with it is just really just right. Yeah, I just love 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 every bit of it. Basically, the the choruses, especially near the end, are like pretty much gang vocals. It's like everybody, including Phil Ramone, singing. If you listen for the very deep voice, that's Phil Ramone. And Liberty is also ad-libbing overdubs. (laughs) Is he really? Yeah, he says, uh, at some point you hear somebody yell, you're all all right, Sarge. That's Liberty. It's very quiet in the background. Ah. That's Liberty. Yeah, because there were some voices. I never never, um, really figured out what was going on, but that makes a lot Mm -hmm. of sense. And I also like, too, how near the end, Liberty does that, that drum fill, the 16th notes to kind of mimic a helicopter i never thought of it that way but mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. to get the effect mm-hmm. too he says they use like a, a very dead drum head just to give it like more of the thuddiness it's, it was kind of to tie in a helicopter sound we start side two with as i said was has to be the forgotten single from this album which is she's right on time uh what a hidden gem this one is I remember in a episode long ago, you and I trying to figure out the intro into the verse, the timing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> trying yeah. to count it, and it just didn't quite dive. You know what I heard today? I think you can hear Lib's foot go down on the hi-hat. Yep. This is our first appearance of Schlub Billy on this yes. album. Welcome back, Schlub. Mr. A, you know. <laughs> I'm a, I'm, I'm a lunk, but I'm not a bad guy. You know, hey, great, this woman helps me out. You know, you're sounding all uh, John Travolta I'm now. A bit of a punch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I don't know. I'm not wrong. <laughs> John Travolta meets Tony Danza. I think that's Schlub Billy in a, in a nutshell <laughs> yeah. right there. <laughs> this is the real over 30 song. This is that. Even though it's Schlub Billy, it's slightly more mature. Schlub yes. Billy, it's Billy realizing he's got to clean up his act. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know what I realized is that as the organ kicked in and I was thinking about his slightly wavering voice, is this is Stevie Winwood? 100%. It's traffic. And Liberty even says it in the book. Oh, he does? Ah, oh, I thought I figured that. I must have been stuck in my head subconsciously. No, no totally. <laughs> but it, it really is. It's so much so that like whenever I hear him doing Steve Winwood, Billy kind of like cricks his neck to get that kind of like cut off some of the airflow to get that. Right. And I could totally see him do it like getting closer. Liberty says this is their traffic tribute. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, right down to, uh, yeah, this is our traffic tribute. Right <laughs> also, not that far off from higher level. Yeah, yeah, totally. And this is another one with that a, uh, AABB rhyme scheme all the way through it, but there's a lot packed in here. I'm a man with so much tension, far too many sins to mention. Like, it's deep it enough. It is. You know, it's, it's specific enough. I always thought the harmonies were a really interesting choice on the choruses. They're not typical harmonies. I'm not a music theorist, and I'm not as good a musician as I should be, but... I'm not sure what what he's singing above the root, but um, if you listen to the harmonies there in the choruses, it's very an interesting choice. Oh, definitely not of a Billy song, yeah. This is another song where I really like what the guitars are doing, especially in the chorus. A lot of really interesting guitar work on this album. I like how the bridge is the full version of the intro. Yep. Very effective, yet economical. Yeah, and I love how they come out of it, too. Um, you know, where it's just Billy and then Liberty and Doug come in. And that interesting fill that Lib does to kind of take it back out of it into the pre-chorus. It's almost comedic in a way. And, and when you see, when you watch the video, it really makes sense because it starts off real pretty. Dun, 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 dun. You know, you think it's going to be a nice song. And then it, and then like, you know, the, the, the drums just like fall in and it's this picture of a guy that's like all anxious and nervous yeah. trying to get things ready. Um, but then when the woman arrives, the whole thing finally blossoms. Here's what Billy says about the song in these liner notes that I have. He says, that's just about separation and reunion. Most romantic love songs are about the joys of being together, and I wanted to write more of a grown-up love song. It's still a little idealistic about how wonderfully on time this person is. She comes back at just the exact right second. Love is not 100% mushy. There's 20% or 30% that's a stab in the gut. That's painful. That's what makes the good part of it better. Even in my ballads, that are considered mushy love songs like Just The Way You Are, there is a note of what will it take till you believe in me? There's a certain doubt. And it's funny how you mentioned this is like the more grown-up Billy. He even alludes to that. He even says it right there. I want to more write more of a grown-up love song. So now we get to a song that, you know, isn't that great on its own because it's a little silly, maybe hokey yeah. even, if you would. But, you know, in the context of this album, you know, that lightheartedness and that almost schlockiness is like a breath of fresh air after so many heavy songs. Even She's Right on Time, as, as joyful as it is, ultimately, it's it's heavy in its mm -hmm. ways. This isn't complete silliness, but it's a little silly. So we got a room of our own. Yeah. The one thing I thought about today was it's also a nod to moving to suburbia. You know, when you think of living in the city, you think of a row home or you think of living in an apartment. You know, that's where you're crammed in. And, you know, it's interesting now... To think about the fact that you, you you can all of a sudden live your own life. You're not like you're not on top of each other. Yeah. You're gonna find the things that make you happy, even if it doesn't necessarily make your partner happy. And that's how you sort of stay together. You know, I've heard uh, one or two people in my life say like, "Well, we didn't see each other much during the first few years of our marriage." I think that's what made it work. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's important to like have your own thing. That's what this song's about. And it's interesting. Remember, we covered the TV appearances from the early '80s and. Billy is already talking about having a room of your own um, in an interview clip from the year before. Um, so that idea was already ruminating, if not already being written. Yeah, right. As he's getting divorced, apparently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, too little, too late. <laughs> and this is a song, too. Uh, this is, again, from Liberty's book. You know, if you notice, it starts a little kind of abruptly where it's like, suddenly it sounds like the band's already playing. Um, like, we're just like somebody hit record and while they were already going. So the story goes in the book, they had just learned the song. So this was like a fresh, brand new song. They're still feeling their way through. And they were having trouble getting the tempo and the feel right. So that opening bit, they were just playing it over and over to get comfortable with it. And once they felt they had it, 
Billy counted into the rest of the song. And that's what you hear. Coming out of the, the last chorus, when he's doing the It's All Right stuff, Liberty flips the beat around completely and is playing snare on the one and three. And then you hear him kind of double it up to get back to the two and four to flip it back around. And again, this is a lesson to musicians. Don't stop unless your producer tells you to stop. This was a keeper. The feel was right. The groove was right. Even though it was a mistake, he found his way out of it and they were able to keep going. Um, But had he realized he stopped and either choked or stopped altogether, you would have had a blown take. Going into that bridge, um, you hear Billy yell it out. Bridge. Billy had a habit of doing that anyway to give the band vocal cues, but especially now because it was still a brand new song for them. So they must have just liked the way it sounded. So they kept it in. Two quick notes on the the lyrics. I think the line, Pills and I got razor blades, is sort of the last vestige of our glass houses. Like that's something you may be right, Billy. Yes. Listening to this too, I'm going to dub, there's a new Billy character. It's called Sunglasses Billy. It's the kind of song he's going to sing Giving you, giving you snaps of finger guns while he's wearing sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one is uh, when he goes, you have TV shows, I've got crime. Yeah. I think that's now reversed. I think like dudes, we have like our breaking beds and better call souls and whatnot. And women have true crime podcasts. Like I always kind of laugh and roll my eyes at the, I can still remember pat together like a can of sardines. And then there's that, ooh. High Beatles sort of. Oh, totally. Thing. But here it sounds weird doesn't quite fit and then the walk down after it that's total beatlesy too here's what billy has to say uh, on it from the liner notes this is an underlying theme that goes back with me away that independence in a relationship is okay the family that bowls together splits i don't necessarily mean my personal situation it'll probably be interpreted as elizabeth must be into yoga and i'm into beer i don't mean me and her <laughs> when i say we i don't necessarily mean us here I mean, we as an age group, you can't expect everybody to be able to live together just perfectly. You need some space for your own craziness. A room of our own is important. So now we get into coming from one of the most uh, upfront lyrically songs we have. Easily the two most abstract ones on the album, if not in his entire catalog. Yeah, the first one of the two is Surprises. Just beautiful melody and haunting to me the synths at the beginning like there's no attempt at a hook there's nothing pleasing there it's just it's uneasy this is you just took some hallucinogens in her and are having a rough takeoff <laughs> <laughs> and you know this is actually the one of the shortest on the on the album it's only three minutes 26 seconds mm-hmm. you know i mentioned that he did this album without singles in mind but there's only uh three songs that are under four minutes Um, And this is actually one of the shorter pieces, but he packs a lot into it. Lyrically, one thing I noticed is that this is all internal. There's no scene here. Pressure's like that, but everything else on this album is pretty couched in a scene. It's this moment. And here's what I decided this is about. I just decided this today, right? Yes. It's about realizing you've become your parents. Oh. The linchpin's line is, the sins of the father or the sins of the son, which always stuck out. It just never made sense. Like it's such a weird, random thing to yeah. say. For all like the sloganeering in this song, mm-hmm. there aren't any cliches. Right. It seems to me like it's, it's <laughs> the moment where the guy like like that's why that sound is like so jarring at the beginning. He's like, oh god, oh god, I hear myself sounding like my right. dad. Yeah. When you go through it, don't get excited. Don't say a word. Nobody noticed. Nothing was heard. But like, oh, anybody realize that? Oh, okay. right. right it's just me. It was handled so neatly. I got myself out of it, but it shouldn't surprise you. You know, this is going to happen. Yeah. 
break all the records, burn the cassettes. Like they listen to distinctly different music than their parents. That didn't, that didn't help them any. No. Uh, don't look now, but you have changed. Your best friends wouldn't tell you. Now it's apparent. Now it's a fact. You know, it's just that, like, yeah, nobody's going to admit. Nobody's going to be like, hey, man, you turn into your dad. Right. You know, because they're probably scared of the same damn thing. You know, I was looking through Liberty's book, and it's funny. He's got a little write-up on everything but pretty much this song. For, like, the most unusual-sounding song in the catalog, really? like It's like he has no recollection of it, because he says, uneventful and a true Liberty joke. No surprises here. It's very straightforward. Or, you know, I mean, it, it, even though it's like got some weird timbre things going on. Straightforward kind of melody, straightforward kind of structure. Here we are speculating on what we think it means. Well, I've got a little bit from Billy in these liner notes from the Japanese vinyl. And uh, it's funny, this may be the very first time I've heard Billy actually really talk about it. Now, guys, I actually just got this record like three days ago. So I'm reading these for the first time. I got it just in time to record. Here's what he says about surprises. I've heard different interpretations from everyone who's heard the song. Elizabeth thought it meant something. Well, Ramon thought it meant something else. And I'm sitting here going, really? Is that what you thought it meant? Because I was thinking it was a broad metaphysical statement, which I'm not even sure I can explain. Basically about not being a master of or totally in control of your own fate. But that's another maturing process. When you find out you can't really control everything, that goes on in your life, but I don't want to overinterpret the song. I think then I'm in line. If you look at Billy's, you know, him talking as he became a father, you know, he talked about, you know, his dad leaving when he was young and, you know, him being on the road and worrying he wasn't going to be there for his daughter like his dad and wanting to break the mm-hmm. cycle, you know, like all these things. Like, so this is something that he's been very worried about and very aware of. And now we're on to uh, the song as our from Johnny Light in Minnesota would call Scando. <laughs> I now see this song as a yin and yang to surprises because um, I think it has better music but the lyrics aren't as good whereas uh, surprises I like the lyrics more but the music was a little weaker. And that's mostly because I know what it's about now and it's like just really decoded. Yeah, once you demystify the lyric of Scandinavian Skies it's like, oh, okay, it's a bad drug trip. <laughs> that's pretty much the bottom line of what it's about. Liberty actually has some interesting um, production notes on this song, which to me, I always geek out on the the studio stuff. This is a little behind the scenes about some of the recording. He says that the voice is an actual announcement from an airport in Norway. The jet sounds are actually from a sound effects record. And the uh, the drum part is actually Liberty playing it overdubbed three times. So there's actually a very thick overdubbed drum part. The drum fills have that really unique, weird phasing, and that's a phase shifter on that one. And they use the percussion cases again, like on Allentown. I think you can hear it near the end. Go, 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 like that. Hey, man, they really got their money's worth, Yeah, no kidding. They're like, well, hey, if we're going to get billed for it anyway, might as well go for broke. (laughs) And uh, he talks of Billy mumbling in the background, which is kind of like John Lennon on Yellow Submarine. Or on The Walrus. Oh, yeah. Right? Yep. Mellotron solo, which I thought was an interesting piece. So the basic tracks were actually just Doug, Liberty, and Billy. It was Doug on bass, Billy on Hammond organ, and Liberty on the drums. And there's actually no guitars anywhere on this song. And if you notice on the Live from Long Island performance of it, they've got Russell and David playing a snare drum, the double Liberty. For those that don't know, the, this song is basically about the fact that they, when they toured in Amsterdam, heroin was legal. So they decided, well, I guess we should try it. And they weren't, <laughs> they didn't really enjoy themselves. They weren't a heroin band that's where the line I could play the blues all day came from was all Billy wanted to do was like either hear or listen to like blues music yeah. while he was on. <laughs> I liked that the piano, like that single piano note is sort of like that last vestige of reality as you sink away. 
very effective for being one note and kind of droning. Right, especially when everything's, you know, not necessarily in in Western tuning. There, I would say, right. I think it's really sliding. Yeah, because you have that. That it's like it's the meter, it's the pulse, and it's like I said, it's got that pulse drone to it. But like everything else is kind of swirling around it. I've never done heroin, but you know they, they call it like chasing the dragon because you never catch it, sort of thing. Right. I like the fact that like it keeps trying to rise to a peak, but then it like just devolves into this like turgid drums roll over the place. Nothing's making sense for a minute, and then they kind of come out of it. But that really worked. I know, obviously, it's about that experience. I would just have loved to have been a fly on the wall of them attempting to construct it. Like, how do you piece a song like this together? I almost want to say it's not as hard as you think. Yeah because it's really a bed track with a lot of weird stuff on That's top true. of it. There's a very basic song at the at the core of this, and just a whole lot of overdubs on top of it. It's funny now that you bring it up, um, there's actually a demo for Scandinavian Skies from Larry Frank that has surfaced, or a work in progress. It's, it's it's there. It's just some interesting chord choices. It's fun to hear it stripped of everything. You can really hear um, how effective that melody is. And two, where like how there's a section, you know, they're still trying to kind of work their way through it. And like for a minute, Liberty kind of goes to like a straight groove and then kind of abandons it because yeah. it, like it doesn't jive with it. So it's to me, it's just fascinating to see, you know, Back then, they would roll tape like all the time because you never knew when you were going to get something special. That brings us to the closer of this album and another diamond in the rough, another real forgotten gem here, yes. which is Where's the Orchestra? I love this song so much now is because I guess in my mid to late 30s I was sort of like trying to figure out in a way who I really was you know there were there was dude I wanted to be and I realized I wasn't that hip and I learned the term bridge and tunnel which refers to everybody that doesn't live in Manhattan and all the rest of us schlubs have to take the bridge of the tunnel to get into the city yeah so we we sort of just visit there from time to time but we don't actually live there and I'm like you know what I think that's me like you know I, I do some cool stuff but like I was never the guy that was like living downtown, living the life, you know, knew all the characters kind of right. thing. 
there are so few songs dedicated to that idea and this is one of them and it's it's so well done because it doesn't like hit the nail on the head it just just gives you this slice of interior monologue and a guy that like thought he was hip and is just like he's not you know because he <laughs> yeah he thinks this is going to be a musical he wandered into some sort of artsy production yes you know, some sort of experimental theater or something or like minimalist he might be in a black box where he thought it was going to be like a mezzanine or something yeah yep. know, or it was going to be like a grand theater well, I guess it's not a black box because he's in the balcony, but still. Yep. Talk about the Suburban Billy, This Is It, and this is like this is like the anti-critic song. You talk about like not thinking about singles. Yes. You write a song that you know these guys writing at Cream and Rolling Stone and Maximum Rock and Roll are not going to understand at all. It's such a vulnerable song. It's the most vulnerable um, on the record, certainly. You know, for a minute, he used to close concerts with it, and it was it's a nice closer like it is for an album closer because it's kind of like the dust is settled and I just kind of picture him alone just reflecting on life. Liberty sort of alludes to this having to do with him getting divorced. Yeah. Well, also his career. Like he says, being at the top isn't like you thought it was. Yeah, there's that. There was, But there was something in here that I, I, I took as like sort of a, maybe not a dig to the critics, but sort of alluding to what the music business really looks like, especially in in terms of the rock stars he's being compared to and then supposedly coming up short against. I assume the show would have a song, so I was wrong. At least I understand all the innuendo and the irony, and I appreciate the role the actors played. One thing some rock critics will say is like, he's writing Broadway, he's, he's writing musicals, he's not writing rock and roll. So the fact that he thinks it's supposed to be a musical when it's not sort of points to that, but it's that idea that, you know, he's, he's sort of calling... These other guys, actors, he's sort of pointing out yes. that like, there's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors going on. Mm -hmm. Like he gets that. He understands that that's what it is, but he, it's just not his thing. He, you know, that's what he was saying. He was always like, I can not, I'm not going to dress like David Bowie. You know, I'm going to wear a suit and a tie. It seems like it's just, I'm going to have respect for my audience. Like they showed up, I'm going to dress up for them. And, but I'm not going to be Elton John with, with crazy costumes. That's not who I am. What makes him a little more relatable than, you know, even Bruce Springsteen, who was always considered like, you know, working man of the people kind of thing. But after a certain point, you didn't really buy it out of Bruce. As I said, a couple episodes ago, it, it's really only a small handful of his songs of his, of his entire catalog. That's that speaks to that, but that's where he got labeled. And Billy was so all over the place that he, he kind of shape shifted, you know, as soon as he got, they tried to peg him one way. He would, he would take a hard left back to his boxing roots. He was always, you know, just dodging mm -hmm. the punches, trying yeah. to counter their moves. This album points to what I'm about to say, especially in terms of comparing him to Springsteen. Billy showed he didn't tell. Springsteen kind of told. You know, Springsteen told these stories of these people. Yes. Billy spoke as them. So that seems like a, about the place to close this because the last thing we hear on this album is a reprise of the melody of Allentown, just bringing us right back where we started, uh, reminding us that for as many flights of fancy that occur, at least sonically, on this album, mm -hmm. it's all about regular people. It is all about suburbia. Yeah. It is all about people of his generation getting older and and facing up to themselves. That Allentown reprise gives me goosebumps every time. It's so subtle, um, and it's mm -hmm. just tucked away at the end of Where's the Orchestra there. It's honestly one of the more emotional points of the record to me, and I can't even verbalize why. It's that little lump in your throat. You're like... Wow. Okay. I just went on, went on a journey of the this generation, yeah. and here I am back where I started. Allentown talks about being stuck somewhere, and the small attempts it feels like to leave, yeah. and that's where this guy finds himself after he realizes, you know, 
he's not part of the theater crowd. He's not part of uh, the intelligentsia or, or whatever else. He's just a dude from the suburbs. On a production note, I thought it was a nice and interesting choice to have the vocal pan hard left on this track. You're getting a tiny twinge of reverb on the right, but everything vocally is is panned left. And it also gives it a little more of a sense of isolation and a sense of loneliness because it just narrows that vocal feels so narrowed, you know, over on the one side. I forgot to mention it as well on a room of our own, but I just wanted to mention another panning thing I thought was fascinating. The drums during the choruses and the outro of a room of our own are panned largely right. Um, They really experimented with panning the drums on that song. And I thought that was a really, really cool, something interesting to try. That was, you know, you typically only saw more of when stereo, you know, on those like Beatles records when they were first mixing for stereo and it was new. So they would pan stuff crazy yeah. just because they could. That's it for the track listing of the album. I've got a couple of notes too, before we wrap up on chart positions and how the album did overall. I did want to touch on one thing too, on the artwork a little bit. If you notice on the back cover of the nylon curtain, Billy is, you know, sitting at the table, holding a coffee cup, reading a newspaper. And I mm-hmm. know Jeff Fisher had figured it out. And I think somebody else may have reached out to me as well. I forget, but Jeff has figured out the date like of this photo shoot based on the newspaper. Much easier to look at it um, on the vinyl copy. The most prominent headline is Expo's Top Punchless Mets. If you look up that headline, you're actually going to find out that that was in the New York Times, June 30th, 1982. So if you actually look up that headline, you're going to find it on the July 1st, 1982 New York Times. It stands to reason that's the date this photograph was taken. So as we mentioned, the album did come out in September, but as albums do, the lead single from it, Pressure, came out ahead of time. So September 7th, the single for Pressure was released, the actual 45, which had Laura on the B-side, which was, again, the single in question that I got in trouble over. Mm -hmm. But the song actually made its debut on the Billboard charts on September 25th, and it peaked at number 20. On the hot, this is the Hot 100 charts on November 20th of 82, and it lasted on the charts for 17 weeks. And then the Allentown single was released November 16th with Elvis Presley Boulevard as the B side. And it debuted uh, on the Billboard Hot 100 on November 27th of 82. It peaked on February 5th, 1983 at number 17, and it lasted on the charts 22 weeks, about five months. Goodnight Saigon was the third and final commercially released single from the album and that made its debut on the billboard hot 100 march 19th of 1983 and it peaked at number 56 on april 2nd 1983 and lasted a total of seven weeks on the chart that peaked april 2nd and an innocent man came out august 8th so good nights i got peaked on the charts only four months before an innocent man came out that's how tight these albums were together and let's not forget that songs in the attic was still on the charts, at, the, at least at the beginning of 1982. Yeah, absolutely. Was it She's Got Away that was the uh, single still on the charts there? Yes. That was released February 13th. Spent 12 weeks on the charts. You know, you went from this uh, early career retrospective into this heavy album, into An Innocent Man in the yeah, span of yep. two years, all, all told. And again, you know, Class Houses was spring 1980. So again, three years <laughs> between all of that, practically. 
those three commercial singles. Now he had three music videos. You had the pressure video, you had the Allentown video and the she's right on time video. And the Allentown video was shot summer of 82 in LA. The pressure and she's run on time video were both shot in London in 82 in the summer. And those I believe were done like in the same weekend. Billy looks the same. You could even see some of the same flooring between the two videos. Mm -hmm. And later there was a video for Goodnight Saigon. There was a studio version that had like, I think there was like kids playing with like army toys or something like that, which was soon replaced by the live from Long Island version, which was live and interspersed with photographs of Mm -hmm. veterans. As far as the album goes, the album actually peaked at number seven on the Billboard 200 charts. Uh, It made its debut in October, October 16th of 82. The peak, like I said, was number seven, and it was November 20th, 1982, and it lasted 35 weeks on the Billboard 200 charts. You know, sadly, this album performed marginally poorer than the two studio albums around it, Glass Houses and An Innocent Man, both loaded with huge singles, and both are among Billy's biggest albums. Yeah, it's it's funny how an album of this magnitude is almost a footnote. You know, Billy has gone on in several interviews to say that this is probably the album he's most proud of from a production and a writing standpoint. I think it's kind of a cult favorite of his, even though there's the two hit singles. You know, it's an album, like we said, didn't sell terribly well, but a lot of people I've I've talked to about it tend to love the album. It just wasn't the juggernaut that the others were. But again, it was never going to be. Um, the album, too, actually did get one Grammy nomination the following year. Billy Joel got nominated the following year for An Innocent Man, but Michael Jackson took everything that year. So we're going to hand this off to you guys now. I want to hear from people that bought the record when it came out, and people that got on the train after An Innocent Man, and especially anybody that's picked it up and, well, let's just go ahead and say the last 10 years. What do you think of this album? Uh, how do you think it fits in the catalog? What were your initial thoughts? When you first heard it, uh, anybody seen him concert back then? I'm sure you guys have. You know, coming out of Glass Houses, was this a big departure for you? Were you kind of surprised at some of the darker undertones or, you know, or were you that far along the ride with Billy by that point? You were just, you knew he was going to come up with something different and interesting. I'm curious kind of, you know, what, what you thought when, when this album came out. Give us a shout. <laughs> you can find us on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We also have a new Discord server. Uh, you'll see links for all of those in the show notes, or you can shoot us a message uh, or an email if you want to link to the Discord as well. Slowly getting things going, but we've got a nice little group of folks and some good conversations going there. Please reach out to us. Your conversation and your insight really helps propel us week after week. And you know, we're not even going to tell you about the five-star rating and review, because but you know, at this point, you know what the deal is. You know what to do. You know how much it helps us. So, um, you know, if you're so inclined, do the thing. <laughs> you know all about going on Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star review and favorable. Five, the favorable, favorable. See, I can't even say it anymore. I've said it so many times. Yeah. You know, you know how to do all that, so we don't need to say it. Exactly. That shouldn't surprise you at all. Exactly. There it is. All right. We're out. <laughs> all right. See ya. See ya.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.